You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Welcome to uh, today's seminar. Um, and um, <clears throat> I'm pleased that so many of you are here. We have a lovely afternoon. Uh, um, lovely weather. Uh, a great panel. And... Um, and um, the theme for today is democracy, uh, sorry, digitalization and democracy in Asia. Uh, it's a very timely topic. If we would uh, look back to the early 2000s, um, I think the conversation about the link between democracy and digitalization would uh, have looked very different compared to now. Uh, then an almost default position was that the digital media would uh, expand public debate, raise awareness, create greater access between people and uh, decision makers, uh, and also sort of in general mobilize progressive forces in society. Today the discussion is perhaps becoming a bit more nuanced, at least different. We think much harder about disinformation about use and misuse of social media. Uh, we think about um, fake news and how states, political organizations, and also big corporates use uh, big data, uh, as well as digital channels, to target and, uh, uh, and find, uh, with tailored messaging, um, an audience and constituencies. And in today's seminar, we'll, we will discuss all this with special reference to Asia. And we have a very well-placed uh, panel uh, to, to engage in this conversation. We will start off uh, with Elsa Hedling, Associate uh, Research Fellow here at UV. She will start with providing a sort of more theoretical grounding to our discussion. Um, this is partly based in her research on digit, digital uh, political communication. We also have Parama Sinapalit at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And you will provide some perspectives from India, uh, and especially with reference to the, to the ongoing election. And finally, we have Sara Schulman, Associate Fellow at UV. And uh, you're also a PhD candidate at Lund University. And you uh, will bring some um, insight into social media and digital platforms in Myanmar. Now, um, we will have about, each speaker will have about uh, 15 to 20 minutes. Um, then I will ask a couple of questions before we open up the floor for uh, a general Q&A. And I would request you to be very uh, brief in your questions and to the point to try to, uh, uh, try to formulate the, the question quite quickly so that we get a chance to have a, uh, an engage in a, in a conversation about this really interesting topic. I would also like to say that if you want to tweet uh, from the event, you have uh, the hashtag over here. And finally, to thank uh, Forum Sud for providing us the opportunity to, to uh, have this seminar. So with that, we'll start with Elsa. Thank you very much. Um, digitalization is shifting 
politics in several different ways. It's shifting how we are accessing political information, how we organize politically, how we react to politics, and to some extent, the threat that our societies are now facing. Digitalization is a large-scale political process, and the topics that we will discuss here today concerns mostly political organization and communication, where social media is still the, the central focus. Other areas of digitalization in politics concerns the more technological interactions with societies. But focusing on this relationship uh, between politics and social media, information and communication are the core political activities under influence. First, um, as Henrik also reflected on, it's, it's relevant to touch upon the brief history of politics and social media. And most notably, this relationship received a lot of attention in relation to the so-called Arab Spring. Back then, it wasn't anticipated that the internet would revolutionize politics. In a very optimistic spirit, the opportunities of reach and connectivity were anticipate, anticipated to amplify the good forces of political activism. It was, for instance, believed that we would now solve the climate crisis the climate um, threats, because we were able to communicate and organize. It was also believed that there would be fewer international conflicts, because a lot of conflicts uh, emerge from misunderstandings, for instance. Um, many of those that were skeptical to this new role of social media assumed that this was just another trend that would eventually go away. And a few years later, most observers agreed that social media did not start the revolutions in the Middle East. People did. And people find ways to communicate. Still, the speed, scope, and reach of social media surpasses other communication opportunities. But social media is not only available and used by liberal forces of democracy or human rights, new problems have emerged through the opportunity structures that it also provides for radicalization, recruitment, criminal activities, and of course, political influence through disinformation and fake news. The anticipation of political change through social media has by now been met by fear of the way that it might also amplify the contestations in society. And for those who claimed that the big names from back then would by now have faded away, they were also proved wrong. Twitter and Facebook are still giants and their political power has increased tremendously. There are many different ways of studying digitalization and a big problem in this field has been that empirical studies have found very different results. For instance, we still don't know enough about how much influence disinformation of fake news actually has on politics, on election results, for instance. And this is because the online sphere does not exist in isolation. It interacts with offline politics. A widely shared assumption is that politics has become increasingly mediatized and that politics is practiced according to new communication demands and that social media is now the latest wave of such a mediatization process. Thinking about this relationship between politics and social media, I think there are four dimensions that are um, relevant from both a global perspective, 
but also in relation to the specific context of Asia and to the experiences in India and Myanmar. First, I think it's interesting and relevant to keep in mind that the relationship between news media and social media is different in different media systems, and so are people's expectations and levels of trust of political communication online. If a society, for instance, has little experiences of free press, social media is more likely to become a primary source of political information, if not strictly controlled. Disinformation and fake news are, is a global phenomenon, and although we still don't know the full effect of these measures, we do know that they do not hit home equally. They do not influence countries in the same way. Some countries have more societal resilience, and this is also key to how countries are now facing this challenge. Secondly, Generational differences are important, and yes, younger people are more likely to get their political news from social media, but studies have showed, for instance, that in the US context, older Americans are more likely to share fake news. And by older, I mean people over the age of 65. So again, this is related to how social media interacts with other aspects of social life. That depends on context, but also variables such as age and media literacy. Third, it is reasonable to discuss the role of social media in relation to different political situations and different audiences of political communication, for instance, during elections and campaigning, but also in between elections and in relation to political crisis, for instance, when contestation can both be managed through effective communication, but also amplified by social media. And finally, and importantly, digitalization is not an autonomous process, it's driven by people. There are examples of failed digitalization when institutions, for instance, have gone back to previous pre-digital systems. And it's very important not to lose sight of the role of actors, both individuals, institutions, and of course also the private sector. Tech companies, for instance, and their role and responsibility in politics and the laws that regulates them are still very unclear but it's certain that this is one of the most important questions um, in contemporary politics at this time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for providing uh, this framework for us to then uh, turn to some more empirical examples. And we will start with India. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Henrik, for giving me this opportunity to come here and uh, share my uh, uh, my research, my work with, uh, with the audience here. Uh, let me begin. Is it okay now? Yeah. Given that democracy is one of the main themes of this seminar, and since democracy and elections go hand in hand, I would, li like, I would like to start my presentation with Indian elections, which is going on right now, then go on to discuss how digitalization is shaping India's election discourse and end with how fake news is impacting Indian elections. So the first slide, please. Yeah. So the sheer size, the number of eligible voters going to vote in the ongoing election is 900 million. So you can imagine the sheer size of the electorate. 
which is supposed to be held in seven phases. The elections have already begun in India and yesterday was the first day. It is both, and some facts, it is both general elections to the Lok Sabha, which is the lower house, and a few state, uh, state legislative assemblies that are being held right now. The, the general elections are to be held in 29 states and seven union territories. Next, when I say talk about, I have listed it here, daunting logistical challenges. I mean that there are these tiny villages in India with one voter and the entire election commission and the machinery goes to that one little village to help one voter cast his one vote in one polling station, one booth. So that is the kind of you know, uh, challenges that you face in India. And the election commission lives up to it. So elections to be organized right now in 29 states, seven UTs, and four state legislative assemblies. And by the way, in India, you have elections going on throughout the year. It's a continuous process. So conducting elections in the world's largest democracy is not an easy task. And now, with the enormous proliferation of digital platforms and spread of fake news, misinformation, disinformation, its, image, its management has become even more cumbersome and complicated. Fake news used to nail rival parties with doctored audios and videos and morphed photographs has emerged a new challenge for the EC, that is the Election Commission of India, with the EC taking certain steps in this regard. We will look into this a bit later. Second slide. While many call the 2014 election a social media-driven election, I prefer to call it a technology-driven election, with social media gradually shaping the elect Indian election discourse. Again, we will look at the 2014 election a little later, with a little more detail. With several studies showing that images through social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook can play a critical role in politics when members of the public are evaluating politicians, there has been a rush to project leaders through these platforms, including India. And thus, one observes how social media is gaining traction in a country like India, more so during elections. For example, WhatsApp's enormous usage in India has led politicians to create 50,000 WhatsApp groups this election. The last one year has been particularly significant as far as social media shaping elections in India is concerned. The year 2018 has seen a rise in the use of social media by Indian political parties working on their online images uh, and also for wooing voters, especially the youth and the first-time voters, with FB reporting a total potential audience of 241 million active users in India, compared to 240 million in the United States. Over the last two, two to three years, there has also been a rise in the online use of local languages in India. As statistics go, over 95% of YouTube video consumption in India is in regional languages, 
with regional political parties like the TMC, Trinamool Congress in West Bengal, YSR Congress Party of Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, and Shiv Sena in Maharashtra and all major regional parties, employing YouTube to connect with the people and influence voters. There are these now campaign songs that are created and posted on YouTube, which are extremely popular right now. And they are played, they are shown every day on TV. So every politician finds these platforms advantages since real-time reactions and opinions can be tracked, monitored, and used effectively when they post or share information on these platforms. They can also amplify their mass messages. The candidates also realize that the quickest way to inform, to confirm, clarify, or contradict is via social media. And as we see, political parties fully leveraging their online presence to get their messages out and for damage control. You can see this. I didn't say the next slide. This is the first slide. No, just the earlier one, please. Yeah. No, the next. Yeah. So this slide captures how electioneering has transformed over the last few years. You can see the statistics. All ways are being replaced. No, sorry. This is the. Yeah, so you can see the statistics. The next one. This slide. Yeah. This slide captures how electioneering has transformed over the last few years. Old ways are giving way, are replaced by new digital ways for influencing voters and wooing them. For example, a new FP page, Facebook page, has been dedicated to first-time users by the BJP this election spending. 66,250 US dollars a week on ads alone. This is a timeline. In this slide, I would like to draw your attention to the last point. This is important because it highlights the power of social media during its early days. Anna Hazare, an Indian, I'm sure a lot of people who tracks India would be aware of this name. He's an Indian social activist. He showed the Indians the power of social media in 2011, when it was still emerging. The online support that was generated for the anti-corruption campaign that he was leading at the time was a rare example of online support translating into offline action in the form of in the form of protests in various cities during the time. Seeing its success, it was subsequently picked up by, as a tool by the politicians and political leaders to connect with their electorate. Now, like I had said, I would look at the 2014 uh, election a little more closely uh, from the angle of uh, technology. So you see, it is in 2014 that technology was extensively employed for political communication by the BJP, and Modi dominated the conversation, but this time his rivals appear to be catching up. Apps like Political Siri was used to pro provide followers and potential supporters access to Modi's speeches on specific issues simply by calling a phone number. The union government later launched a new platform called 
Twitter Samvad. Samvad means news. In association with Twitter for direct communication among leaders, government agencies and citizens through tweets and text messages, helping boost e-governance plans. It targets the citizens who do not have an access to internet, but can receive those tweets in the form of normal messages. This also indicates the extent to which the new government at the time was committed to digitalization and being visible online. The next, now going back to the 2014 elections again, gamification to gain new supporters was also launched during the campaign. For example, individuals were given a NAMO number, which we will see in the next slide, representing the number of supporters they had added directly or indirectly, motivating them to add more contacts with the ultimate goal of increasing the BJP support base. So this is the NAMO number. Next one. Yes. Well, this is not all. The NAMO mobile, uh, mobile app was launched in 2015 to provide updates on the day-to-day -day activities of the Prime Minister to make him more accessible to the people. Extensively used for mega interactions between the Prime Minister and party candidates, legislators, member of parliaments, and office bearers, as it was seen during the Karnataka elections last year in 2018, in April, it also presented an opportunity to receive messages and emails directly from, from him. However, its interactive feature is not really its strength, and the Prime Minister is noted more for his one-way communication, according to his critiques. These apps like Namo and other online websites promoting the party are supported by a very active IT cell of the BJP, which has a social media team relentlessly working towards it. It has the maximum online presence amongst all the political parties present in India. The other political parties are also not behind. For example, in MP in Madhya Pradesh, this is another Indian state. In 2018, the Madhya Pradesh Congress Committee wrote in a letter to ticket aspirants that, this is a tweet, candidates in upcoming polls must have 15,000 likes on their FB page, 5,000 followers on Twitter, and a WhatsApp group of booth-level workers. They must like and retweet every post on Madhya Pradesh Congress committee's Twitter account. So this is a tweet and again showing the relevance of social media and elections. Next slide. Yeah. So it is not the BJP alone, like I just talked about this tweet by the, Madhya, uh, by the Congress. Uh, it is not the BJP alone which is engaging in political communication through social media platforms. Post-2014, there has been an aggressive use of social media platforms by all leading Indian national and regional parties. The Congress this election put out an FP post inviting people to fill out a customized form to improve the party's communication along with a WhatsApp number requesting users to connect on the platform. By the way, it has also been communicating with over 5 million party workers via a digital platform called Shakti. Shakti means power. 
which was an app launched by the party in 2018, ahead of the assembly elections. The Congress also has a dedicated data analytics team analyzing voter behavior while asking voters their opinion on hot button issues like the Rafale deal controversy, which is irregularities in the purchase of Rafale jet fighter, jet, uh, Rafale fighter jets, uh, the effects of demonetization. Demonetization is withdrawing of old currency note that happened in 2016 to fight black money, and so on. Local issues are also not ignored and in fact are given a priority by the data analytics team. For example, in a state like Madhya Pradesh, the extent of migration out of the state and unemployment are taken into account, while in another state, Chhattisgarh, healthcare and public distribution system remain the focus. Next slide, please. Sorry, there's one more point. It's okay. Similarly, regional parties are also increasing their online presence. The TMC, the Trinamool Congress in Bengal, is focusing on building an arsenal much before. I think you have to change. Uh, digital warriors to garner more support for the ruling TMC, as is the CPIM, Communist Party of India Marxist, which is also increasing its digital presence on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and is working to scale up activity on all of these, as well as its YouTube channel. As I mentioned earlier, the use of YouTube this election has been dramatic. So all the prayer parties are creating their campaign songs and posting it there. This is not it's before this. Okay, never mind. All political parties have been engaging in electioneering communication for connecting with the voters and then wooing them, which has assumed its distinctness in a country like India, diverse in every respect. For example, welfare and social schemes and other initiatives on social media are employed to demonstrate the government's welfare approach towards the people. However, there is another part to this political discourse. The same schemes and initiatives are picked up by the opposition to taint the ruling party leaders, like you see here, like in the demonetization, probably the next one. Demonetization, uh, uh, yeah, demonetization and on farmer distress. There are also attempts by the parties, next one, parties to misguide and misinform the people giving rise to the manufacture of fake news, creating problems of credibility. While in 2014, social media was used to get the message out, in this election, the dangers are coming to the fore. It is therefore very important to examine how fake news is being handled in India. The next few slides talk about, highlight this dimension. 
So here you see India is one of uh, 48 countries to have social media manipulation campaigns. According to a BBC report, which has analyzed 16,000 Twitter accounts and 3,000 FB pages in India, there is currently a rising nationalist tide in India, which is driving ordinary citizens to spread fake news. The research suggested that facts were less important to some than the emotional desire to bolster national identity. Further, there was a growing tendency to cull speeches out of context and give it a communal narrative. Therefore, with social media platforms accused of taking political sides, India has been compelled to take steps to debunk fake news. The IT Parliamentary Committee summoned Twitter's top executives to discuss safeguarding citizens' rights on social media and online news platforms. But the steps taken by the Election Commission of India to fight, fight fake news is what is unprecedented in history. Its code of conduct for all political parties to adhere to with respect to social media platforms is the first of its kind. It got into the Voluntary Code of Ethics for General Elections 2019. With the Internet and Mobile Association and social media intermediaries aiming to take down content in violation of 48-hour silence period within three hours during this Lok Sabha election. Candidates were also asked to furnish their social media accounts when filing nominations. Political advertising on social media is to be considered a formal part of the campaign subject to electoral rules and regulations. Further, payments to internet companies and websites for adverts and campaign-related operational expenditure on making creative content, salaries and wages paid to workers for maintaining social media account are also to be accounted for with the Election Commission. It has also brought bulk SMSs and voice messages on phone and election campaigning through social media under the purview of pre-certification of election adverts, just like electronic and radio advertisements. An e-vigil app has also been introduced by the EC to facilitate citizens to record on his Android mobile and report to election authorities any violation of model code of conduct, and it has happened. Yesterday was the first day, and this people are already uh, you know, reporting this. Uh, any incident of intimidation or inducement within minutes of having witnessed them and without having to go to the returning officer. The complainant could also remain anonymous if he so wished. So while the election commission is trying its best and struggling to uh, contain fake news, there are some alternate voices that have emerged in India fighting fake news. And some of them, these are the political Baba, the frustrated Indian East India comedy company, Boom Live and Alt News. Now, political Baba is a Guardian-nominated election blog providing an alternative view on India and the general elections. The next one is another platform which targets the youth and gives them an alternative uh, another platform to, uh, you know, to give their 
different perspectives, alternate perspectives. Now, the next one is very interesting. East India Comedy Company. It's a group of stand-up comedians who show their satires on politics and religion in India. Boom Life is, again, it busts fake news and alt news, alt news is an Indian fact-checking website and there are several others. So what are the takeaways? India's political communication is increasingly going the digital way with active young social media users a key driver. However, there is also an attempt to use these tools as weapons to divide the society by political parties. While online communication has been emphasized in this presentation, offline communication also remain a priority with political parties, political leaders. The BJP recently launched a TV channel on Namo TV, Narendra Modi, the short form, Namo TV, offering real-time coverage of Prime Minister Modi's election campaign, with Modi himself tweeting about the channel and encouraging them to watch it. Man Ki Baat is from the heart, conversation from the heart, is another radio program hosted by the Prime Minister himself to address the people, especially in the villages. While radio and TV continue to be employed to connect with the people, they are complemented by these homegrown apps like ShareChat, which works in 14 Indian languages, making English not an app option for digital communication and are popular in smaller two- and three-tier cities. In fact, ShareChat has tied up with the election commission to combat fake news this election. There are other apps like TikTok with its headquarters in Beijing which is also very popular for short mobile videos and having a huge following in India. It has 24.5 million daily active users as on 31st January 2019. The app is consistent and regular in posting videos on topics like Akhand Bharat, which is undivided India, and topics on Hindu religion. However, many also suggest that social media's influence on election is overhyped since grassroots voters are still untouched by social media, and these are quite a number in India. While digitalization is perpetuating democracy in India by increasing the public space and providing people with more political power, it has also created fake news, which is being used pol politically with damaging consequences. In a country like India, where diversity is the norm, this, the spread of fake news is a real challenge, threatening democracy by manipulating the Indian political environment. I would end with a quote here. In the brave new world of the internet, where authority is evenly distributed to everyone with a voice or a podcast, no one believes anybody, or it is the same thing, everyone believes anybody. Thank you very much. Thank you so much um, for, for uh, this interesting expose. Uh, and uh, we will for sure uh, return in the question and answer session to uh, um, the situation in India uh, during the election. So we jump straight into Myanmar.
Um, and um, so, Sarah, you could please um, take us, walk us through the situation there. Um, quite the contrary um, case, I'm afraid. Um, we can. So I think. Um, I think. Um, I will begin by saying that I was based in Yangon in 2015-2017 during what was really the epicenter of the world's fastest digital transformation. And I added a map just to make sure we know where we are, um, very close to India and very close to China. Um, this, this digital transformation came about after the military regime initiated sweeping reforms beginning in 2010 to re-engage with the global market after decades of isolation and authoritarian rule. In 2011, foreign telecommunications companies, uh, amongst them the Norwegian Telenor, were given licenses to invest in information networks and infrastructure. The cheap 3G Chinese smartphones uh, with internet connections started to flood the Myanmar market. From being one of the least connected countries in the world, uh, more than 80% of the population of 50 million people had access to mobile phones in just a few years. Uh, in fact, the proportion of smartphone um, owners in Myanmar is proportionately higher than in uh, the United States. By 2015, at the time uh, for the election, um, Myanmar was the world's third um, fastest growing mobile phone market. And many Burmese who had been educated outside the country returned to set up startups and uh, ed tech organizations. Uh, innovation started to pick up. Um, I remember when the bus lines were drastically reconfigured in Yangon. Um, it took a few hours for, uh, for a few uh, activists to set up a local trans transportation chatbot, um, helping two million people to navigate the bus system. Um, so high expectations were raised uh, that educational apps could help leapfrog the neglected school system and bring a majority rural population uh, out of poverty. International organizations invested in uh, localized apps to promote uh, transparency and provide instructions on how to vote in 2015 um, and, and connected farmers with knowledge apps on agriculture. So how did we go from that climate to the social media misuse uh, that caused the United Nations fact-finding mission? in 2017 to conclude that social media had played a determining role in the genocide of the Rohingya population. And I think to understand the digital transformation, um, it's really important to understand the nature of the political transition in 2011. And I will argue here, as I have done elsewhere, that the Myanmar political transition initiated by then President Thein Sein in 2011 was not a process of democratization uh, driven by pro-democratic forces. The military, the Tatmadaw, planned and executed these reforms. The hybrid civil military order that has developed as a result safeguards a continued authoritarian rule 
and, and military dominance, um, as we see in the Rakhine state, but also elsewhere in the, in the Xin and Kachin and Shan states. If anything, the regime transition in 2011 can best be described as a top-down and elite-controlled transition. Protracted violence and conflicts between the military and ethnic armed groups, in combination with crony capitalism, has meant that the liberalization of the public space that began in 2011 benefited not only progressive social and political actors, but also enabled the growth of uncivil society, whose pursuit of exclusionary identity politics has fueled sectarian violence on the platforms. Conflicts, conflicts that existed for decades and not least during the British colonial rule um, has been transcended into the new social media platforms and by its default algor algorithm uh, that cater content according to liking. It exacerbates the already existing tensions. And persisting conflict and instability in turn has benefited the army by playing to its self-image and constitutional right as the guard of the nation. This self-image has been reinforced by social media through which the military has been given a bigger and more immediate platform. So because the transition wasn't democratic, the notion that the digital transformation in Myanmar in itself would bring about democracy as propagated by many international ICT donors at the time, not least after the Arab Spring, and by privately owned social media companies such as Facebook and others should be a cautionary tale in the case of Myanmar. The misuse of social media was noticed very early on in Myanmar by local groups and activists. Leading bloggers such as Naifon Latus, today an elected MP, uh, cautioned already in 2012 after a series of deadly riots broke out between Rakhine Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims in the Rakhine state that Facebook was being used to mobilize mobs and spread rumors on its platform. As a response, as a response he founded the Panzaga movement, literally meaning flower speech, in 2014 to promote the responsible use of the internet. One of its initiatives was to launch these Facebook stickers um, with Speak Panzaga messages. A Buddhist ultranationalist movement has since gained traction, exacerbated through the Facebook platform and targeting the Muslim Rohingyas, as well as a broader Muslim population. The movement has tapped into a larger global discourse on terrorism and conspiracies, conspiracy theories and has spread images and videos by ISIS accusing Myanmar Muslims of belonging to terrorist cells. In 2014, a post on Facebook by the Buddhist ultranationalist monk Ubiratu about an alleged rape in Mandalay resulted in bloody riots with two people killed. Neither the Myanmar military nor the democratically elected government led by State Councillor Dong San Suu Kyi has offered a convincing counter-narrative um, to these ultranationalist sentiments. 
On the contrary, officials have cracked down on regime-critical Facebook posts on defamation charges, whereas Uvirato, known for his inflammatory speeches, has been left untouched. Several users on Facebook criticizing or humoring the civilian government have been indicted. One of the more famous cases involved Jo Sanditun, who spent a few months in jail over a Facebook post comparing the green color of Aung San Suu Kyi's tamain, which is a traditional skirt, with the green color of military uniforms. In 2016 and 2017, Rohingya Muslim militants affiliated with the newly established Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army attacked military posts in the Rakhine state. The Myanmar military responded by an aggressive offensive operation resulting in hundreds of villages burned. An estimated 700,000 people fled to Bangladesh, which led the United Nations to call it a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Buddhist ultranationalist groups, as well as the Myanmar military and government officials, used Facebook to spread false news and counter-narratives in order to discredit reports on human rights transgressions. Um, this is in 2016, right after the, uh, the attack by the, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. And you can see how the Facebook posts explode. Now, I think, I think we need to understand the role that, that Facebook plays in Myanmar. Um, there is a common saying in Myanmar that we don't Google with Facebook. And for many users, Facebook is simply the internet. The reason why this, why the situation in Myanmar is so dominant compared to other countries, um, is firstly that the cheap 3G Chinese phones that flooded the market, um, they, uh, they distributed Facebook and it was sped up through a network of phone manufacturers, vendors and network carriers. Most phones came preloaded with the app, either through the manufacturers themselves or through phone vendors who often open accounts for customers without them knowing their passwords. Several of the network carriers offered free access to Facebook as part of their mobile phones or helped Facebook spread its free basics project. The free basics project, a limited version of the internet, was disconnected in Myanmar by September 2017 the project has been criticized for harvesting metadata about users and violating principles of net neutrality by predominantly featuring third-party services from companies in the United States. The Myanmar Free Basics platform included very few Myanmar news websites and no email provider or alternative social media platforms. Secondly, the cheaper Chinese smartphones came with very little storage unit. Users, therefore, had to carefully select apps that they used on a daily basis. This explains why Zapia, a file-sharing peer-to-peer app, and a Zoji font keyboard were competing with Facebook over most downloads in the country. This also explains why educational apps were struggling to gain traction and why many international organizations had little success with distributing the apps that they had developed. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the Myanmar language lacks a single encoding standard. 
The majority of Burmese-speaking people use a font called Zoji uh, for text input, which is incompatible with Unicode, a globally accepted industry standard. Content created using Zoji can therefore not be read on all devices, and applications using the Myanmar language have, have to devise a way to converting content. One of the reasons Google was less appealing to a Myanmar population was precisely the fact that the search engine only allows for Unicode, whereas Facebook allowed for both Zoji and Unicode. That Facebook catered to the mass by offering Zoji has had several negative implications and can partly explain the situation we're in today. The lack of a single standard has made automation and detection of misinformation on the platform very difficult. Facebook has been accused of not adequately serving the linguistic needs of different languages on its platform. Myanmar um, has 135 recognized minority groups and about 100 languages. Um, and the platform didn't translate its health center information, which was initially written in English only, and later translated to Unicode. Uh, which rendered it very difficult for the majority users, the Zodi users, to read the community standards or to report transgressions. In August 2018, Facebook announced that it was removing Zodi as an option um, and improving font um, converters for existing ones. Okay. Now, Facebook has a, a very immediate impact on domestic politics in Myanmar. And it has responded mostly by three methods to the criticism. Uh, it deletes, it bans, and it blocks. In 2017, uh, Facebook banned the word kalau, which is a de derogatory word for Muslim on its platform. Other common Burmese words, such as kalape, which means chickpea in Burmese, um, were removed by the software automatically, which created confusion on the platform um, as to why certain accounts and posts had, had disappeared and not others. It was a very crude measure. And in August 2018, to, to, um, to give you another example, Facebook removed 18 accounts and 52 pages, followed by 12 million people, including the senior general Min Ong Lang, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, who was singled out by the UN report as responsible for the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya minority in the Rakhine state. Facebook argued that the accounts had been identified as part of a military propaganda campaign, but no records have been shown from Facebook regarding the amount of advertisement that had been funneled through that campaign. And interestingly enough, Min Ong Lang responded by creating a new account on the Russian social media site, uh, Vcontact. And members of ultranationalist Buddhist groups launched anti-Facebook campaigns that were less successful, judging by the number. In March this year, Facebook labeled four ethnic armed groups um, as dangerous organizations, thereby banning them from the platform as well as several of their news channels. This move went counter to the recommendations made by a human rights impact assessment um, 
as well as from several local civil rights groups and human rights groups in, in Myanmar. Concerns have been raised that the removal of these specific accounts, which consist of official presence of these groups, will create a vacuum that might be fueled with disinformation. Myanmar civil society groups and international internet freedom organizations have called for better transparency into how Facebook regulates its content. While Facebook and democratic countries overall are struggling to manage abuse of social media and the internet, China has come to propagate an alternative internet model. Chinese companies already offer countries of the Belt and Road Initiative, such as Myanmar, technology powered by artificial intelligence, um, advanced face recognition technology and data collection tools aimed at online surveillance. The process of internet fragmentation has been enhanced by the failure of Facebook to manage hate speech in Myanmar. The same technological shortcomings have come to plague elections in many countries around the world, causing concerns not least by countries that have seen escalating violence caused by radicalization on, its, on social media platforms. Myanmar is scheduled for election in 2020 and very little indicates that the Myanmar political field will utilize social media for what it was intended for. Thank you. Thank you very much to all three panelists. I think this has been a, a very interesting and uh, um, uh, provided uh, an interesting um, discussion, um, interesting interventions, providing different kinds of um, perspectives on the topic. Um, so I have five minutes to pose questions to you before we open up the floor. And I try, I'll try to sort of combine within one question, a question to all three of you. And I will start with a concept that you, uh, Elsa, mentioned in the beginning, or, um, or um, an idea that you had uh, about societal resilience. And I, I would like the other panelists to think about uh, what that could mean in the context of India and Myanmar. When we hear um, you know, the situation in Myanmar and we, we approach it, uh, the elections now, um, the undergoing in, uh, elections in India. So what would you, I mean, if you would specify and describe what soci societal resilience would be, uh, and then we can see if we can work that uh, out in the context of India and Myanmar. Right. Um, societal resilience in this in this context of, of um, the relationship between um, politics and social media, I think is is the um, the influence that, for instance, disinformation, fake news, um, can have on a society, and that that matters very much, um, or it it uh, varies very much depending on whether or not a society, for instance, is used to being exposed to um, different opinions and different types of material, different types of uh, political information coming their way. Uh, and I think in both these cases, um, it's very clear that societal resilience uh, matters and is very uh, different across different settings. And I think in, in the case of India, of course, it's also the, the share size, so it's not even maybe possible to talk about societal resilience in India, but also to talk about these different regions and 
the different traditions within different groups uh, in India. Uh, and uh, well, in Myanmar, I think that was a very good case of, of, uh, of the absence, really, of societal resilience. Uh, because as you say, um, there it wasn't a democratic context. So it's very difficult to introduce um, these um, new opportunities of, of mass communication when in, in a context where the population um, is not used to that sort of information coming their way. So uh, if we would uh, apply this a bit further to the context of India, I mean, um, for every, every person who in this audience that have visited India would know that there are, the print media is, you know, everywhere and in many local languages. So even though, and, and um, even though you go to a distant village, you would find um, a local newspaper. So in terms of, um, to me, it seems that there is a, a lot of traditional media around. So the, the awareness of different opinions is there. So how would you compare that situation, the traditional media situation and the, the awareness of traditional media to social media awareness and media literacy? Uh, you know, India, like we all know, India is a very big country. It's very diverse. It has a number of languages. It has many dialects. And of course, <laughs> one major challenge right now in India is people are not really internet literate. That is a very big challenge for India right now because there is so much of news uh, moving around, making, circulating, that uh, because there is no internet literacy and people are quite new to the use of internet. I mean, anybody who has a, a smartphone are, is there in, uh, any, in one of these platforms or in all. But the problem is it's, it's something which is very new. People are getting used to it. They're also getting fun out of it. And at the same time, the political uh, dynamics are also playing on the internet. So people are confused, especially the younger people, you know, uh, still picking up uh, the rope of internet and the older people who are very new to it, who never saw internet before. They are not familiar with the internet. So in fact, uh, she had uh, mentioned 65 and above. That's again, a big problem. Uh, I think not only in India, but at any other country where people, you are not born with internet. So young people who, who are born with internet, they're aware of it. But in India, again, because like it's so diverse and every person has their own view on political matters. And again, regions, states are different from the national capital. So I suppose it is really complicated. And as far as traditional and uh, the new media is concerned, you know, earlier, even in India, has seen a phase when foreign policy or even other uh, political issues were not really as much circulated as it is right now with the proliferation of social media. I'm not saying that it wasn't there before because people, Indian people, uh, Indians like talking, they love talking and they love discoursing on politics and it has always been a characteristic of Indians. You know, it's called, they are called the argumentative Indians. So they are very aware of the local issues, issues that concern them. And on the basis of that, they have always casted their vote 
votes during elections. Traditional media was, of course, there, but again, under Modi, traditional media has been moved, pushed to the background. So it's more social media because political leaders are very smart. They know social, they can employ social media to directly communicate with the people. So they don't have to have gatekeepers, something which Trump follows also. So, you know, Modi is one leader who has always believed more in social media and communicating with the people directly rather than depending on traditional media. Like, in fact, he has not given a single press conference after coming to power. So that's the kind of uh, leader he is. And of course, India is a very, very peculiar country, very unique country in its own way. And in Myanmar, uh, you mentioned, uh, in Elsa also touched on this, um, that the situation is quite uh, original and unique uh, in Myanmar. So in terms of, um, in terms of so uh, societal resilience uh, in Myanmar, where, are there pockets where, uh, um, you know, where there is resilience to this kind of, of uh, hate speech and uh, rumors uh, and so forth that are spread um, on the, these platforms? I mean, definitely. Um, we shouldn't forget that there is a very strong Burmese exile movement that fled the country around 1988 with the revolution that has been very active in the UK, in the US, in the EU, on the border of Thailand, um, having excessive, uh, very good relations with international community and NGOs. Um, and they, of course, have created a lot of these platforms and positive reinforcing um, messaging. Um, some of them moved back to Myanmar with the opening of the space in 2011. And some remains in, in outside Myanmar and continue to be carefully watching what's going on. And, and, um, and as I said in my speech, the organizations that really raised concerns early on in 2012 were local NGOs, local ICT organizations and human rights organizations. And I'd say the Myanmar NGO and the Myanmar civil society is very strong, very active. And um, another thing I want to say is, is the Myanmar, just like India here, uh, what, you, what you said about India, um, there's definitely an open climate where people talk about politics. People talk and debate politics. Definitely. But after decades of censorship, um, I'd say there is a culture where, where a lot of people always read between the lines. You know, it's a tradition of always reading between the lines and analy analyzing what is not being said. And therefore, social media, um, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you like something or, or share something that you believe in the message but everyone kind of reads between the lines anyway. So um, it, it's, it's quite a particular situation, I'd say, uh, in Myanmar. But there's definitely resilience in pockets, let's say. Okay, thank you so much. So we'll open up the floor for questions. Um, so I'll remind you to be very brief to the point in your question. I will intervene if I think you go astray. We will start, we have one question here. Thank you. 
My question is about resilience or the opposite of it, which is conductivity, which is highly theme dependent. 12 days ago, um, front line of East and West, there was an election in Ukraine and the big cyber guns of NATO Stratcom and Russia from the other side were fighting it out. And it looked like a game room rather than a campaign headquarters. The distinct difference from what you all said was the focus was on what people are saying to each other. Extract with artificial intelligence. What are the themes that, are, that have conductivity, the opposite of to create your own narratives. You watch it on big screens with graphics, your fish getting bigger, eating the narrative of the other side. That is social media and politics 3.0. Do you see any signs of that in your research? Thank you. I think we can answer that question straight away. Uh, is it directed to someone specific on the panel? Uh, well, I suppose, uh, you know, that is uh, why these political parties are employing data analytics, which I mentioned while I was speaking on this. Uh, data analytics does this work of finding out the voter, voter behavior. And that is how uh, these messages are customized. They are created for specific groups because they want to uh, use these platforms to get their messages out. So in fact, this has been a major problem. Uh, I'm sure all of us are aware of the misuse of uh, data by Facebook uh, during, the, last 20, uh, during uh, the 2014 election in India and in a lot of other countries. So these are used and this is a major concern in India. And that is why you have the election commission taking certain steps to fight fake news or disinformation. So, you know, the, the political parties are definitely into... Sorry. They're definitely trying to influence voters, there's no doubt, but targeting groups and specifically, uh, you know, customizing messages is what is the concern. And that is what, whether it's the Congress, whether it's the BJP, whether it's the other regional parties, they're all into this. So, you know, they all want to get elected. So, you know, if you really, you know, this time you, you can see the elections being fought on religious lines. So if you, it's nationalist, it's on ideology based. So if it's nationalist, right-wing, Hindutva, then you would choose BJP. So that's the kind of messages that BGB puts out on its social media platforms. If it is uh, secularism, Gandhian ideology, or something similar, then it is uh, the Congress that you would go for. So that's the kind of messages that Congress puts out on its social media platforms. On the other hand, if there are other local issues, and you have dedicated, then you go, they, they will go for regional parties. And you know, all these parties have their own dedicated 
supporters. Come what may, whatever they put out, those, those groups will always vote for that particular party in India. So Any it's other that reflections on that uh, question? Um, I mean, I was thinking the level of sophistication uh, that the army, the, the campaign I was talking about that led to the major army uh, personnel uh, losing their accounts on Facebook, there is no way for us to know how sophisticated that was because it's impossible to get the actual insights into that campaign. But it was, uh, it was sophisticated and it was uh, probably utilizing uh, bots and bot networks and etc. It's hard for us to know where Myanmar is on the next stage or where the military is focusing its resources. Um, I don't know if it's, it was just a reflection um, well, I, going back to this brief history of, of the relationship between social media and politics, initially it was very much about listening, about being able to listen to people and to have a two-way conversation to be able to communicate. Today, it's not so much about listening. It's about um, tailoring messages to a targeted population. That's very much what digital political communication is about today. And it's um, the reason for that course is because of several different things but what you just said for instance about the level of, of uh, sophisticated analysis that politicians today have access to they know exactly which questions they need to address to, to which groups uh, and we see in general a shift where politicians are focusing much more on swing voters so that not the group that they actually whose, whose um, opinions they might uh, originally represent, but the group that they might be able to win over. Um, so, so that's one part of it. But then, of course, artificial intelligence is, is this big field, and and um, there are a lot of um, results in this field on the level of sophistication in artificial intelligence today. But for instance, um, yes, like like you were speaking about some of these campaigns, but also some of the content online. Um, we now have problems with deep fakes, for instance. So the fact that you can now manipulate videos that are so good that you can't tell if they are real or not. So, so in theory, you could create a video where Modi is declaring yes. war. Lots of it has yeah, been happening. Yeah, where Modi is declaring war on China and people won't be so able to tell if it's real or not. Now the questions, reflections. Yeah, over here. In all uh, this discussion about digitalization, I am wondering, and uh, I would like an answer, if it, is, um, if it is the media that is the problem, because the media is a media and is a tool, and the use of the tool is the problem and not the tool. So we, we accuse Facebook or the media, but I think that the problem is that the lack of democracy brings this situation and not the digitalization by itself, that it can be very useful for democracy also to spread good ideas, to spread positive ideas. So um, from your experience in Asia, uh, is it any, any positive outcome? Is it something that shows that maybe this situation will turn over in a way. Do you have any, any good news? 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, should we start with you? I, I, I think you're making an excellent point, and I think uh, all of us here are in agreement. Um, what goes on offline will happen online. There is a clear correlation. So I think what's important in, in the Myanmar case is to understand the transition. Yeah? It wasn't a democratic one. And therefore, the online forces we see will, will be challenging. Um, um, yeah, I think that, that was really um, my point. I, I, there are also, I mean, there are very good examples in Myanmar as well, how technology is, there's, you know, there are health, um, health projects where you can self-identify as a malaria um, victim, for instance, so you can track where malaria resistance is happening right now on the border between Myanmar and, Asia, and um, Myanmar and Thailand. I mean, there are a lot of really interesting technology projects, but unless you have democratic institutions and a strong media as well, and strong NGOs that can take the job for Facebook or monitor and manage these harmful content, um, you will not have a democratic revolution through technology. Yes, please. Uh, well, uh, social media in India is, uh, in a way, I would say a boon. Because like I had mentioned, uh, it has definitely enlarged public space. People are participating more and more. And I think the most important thing in a democracy like India is that it's making politicians more accountable to the people. So now they have to actually talk about what they have done for the people. Only then will they get elected. So actually, it means more power in the hands of the people, except that there is also, along with this, there is also this spread of fake news and disinformation that is, of course, uh, ruining the balance or probably uh, uh, creating a problem because people actually don't know who to believe and who not to. But the point remains that, yes, I mean, the political leaders are really scared and they are really trying to fight it out on social media. It's making politicians and political leaders much more accountable because earlier people wouldn't really know which party has done what. But now today if BJP or, put, uh, put, uh, or Congress does something, it will immediately put it out that this is what we have done for you. And now very interestingly, uh, there is this uh, another alternate, uh, uh, sorry, uh, website which busts fake news and gives you the reality what's happening on the ground. During this election, they have launched a website whereby you can go to the, you can click on the website and see what your politicians have done for you in that particular constituency. So now you exactly know what your leaders have been doing. And then you vote accordingly. We have two questions over here. First, my, my question is a bit more general about the role of social media. Because from what I understand, there are now thousands of people working at different companies to check whether things are acceptable, unacceptable, fake news, etc., etc. The which is, I think, rather interesting that uh, there are some companies now that decide what is acceptable, what is true, etc. I think it was even Zuckerberg who said that you know this was a kind of responsibility that was too big for them to bear. Uh, so I was just wondering, you know, this outsourcing of what is acceptable to private companies who, on an international scale, are applying ethics that are, 
I don't know, set in the US, set in whatever. Um, is that is there an alternative to that? Is there a way to prove it, or is it just fate and this is the way it's going to be? And from thousands, there will be tens of thousands of people checking whether you said something that was inappropriate or. Thank you. I think we'll take the next question as well, and then uh, we ask, uh, you can answer both. Thank you. Um, in a way, it, it links to the, to the previous question, but um, I think Myanmar is a very, very interesting example because everything seems to have happened so suddenly, and also because it didn't refer, it ha didn't have any, say, established way of handling media or um, say, ethical standards or anything like that. It happened both technologically suddenly, but also in a kind of, in a social way very suddenly. My question is, is there any, any reactions, kind of official reactions, about establishing ethnic, uh, ethical standards? Um, and can we expect that things go on like they have done during the last seven years, as you pointed out, or will there be a kind of change, shift in the way people react to social media and kind of old media as well? We have less than 18 months to the next general election, and things may have can continue the same way, or they could be kind of shift in the way people handle the information. Thank you. I think. Yeah, I'll say if you want to take the first question about outsourcing of ethics, and then perhaps uh, Sara would be well-placed to answer the second question. Right. Um, well, I think um, your question and the question before about responsibility is very important. And I, I very much agree that I, I don't think you can blame social media for these things. But on the other hand, Facebook is not just a tool. It's also a company, it, there's agency involved as well. Um, and as you just say, uh, and in, in your example here, you talked about the fact that Facebook delete, ban, they delete, ban, and block. But they don't do that equally across all cases. They do that in some instances, and sometimes they don't. So there are a lot of things here. There, there's a lot of power that these companies um, still hold uh, in these situations. So I definitely think that we are, um, and this is a discussion that is going on in a lot of different cont international contexts today, um, but I think in the future we will need to see more regulated social media and we will need to have more accountability, more transparency, um, and um, yes, more ethics involved in, in this um, field and um, yes those are conversations that are going on uh, and some countries are taking um, steps already um, in different ways as well i mean i know in singapore for instance they just passed a law banning fake news um, that might not be the step that all countries will take but um and also it's very difficult to define <laughs> fake Absolutely. news um, but yes, that's ve it's very topical and it's something that won't go away, I think, in the near future. Then we had a link question to just, Myanmar. Just to, very, to build on that, um, Facebook has 18 million users in Myanmar and they don't have an office. 
they don't have any personality. Just until recently, they had two people checking the content, Burmese speaking, and they were based outside the country. So I think there is a conversation to be had about the responsibility for these private companies, uh, especially in developing countries or, you know. Um, for, for your question about ethics, there was an opening. It was a very interesting period from 2011 to 15, 16, where a lot of new laws were, um, um, were initiated uh, in Myanmar, uh, trying to set these new media standards. And an independent media council was set in place. Um, and unfortunately, that has now been pulled back. And so the media situation today is worse uh, than it was in 2012-13. Um, the reforms we're seeing right now in Myanmar has more to do with the administrative, um, shifting the administrative power from the military into the civilian administration. And I think that's probably where uh, Dong San Suu Kyi and her government will, will continue pushing uh, for the election in 2020. I'm not seeing any, any, any really revolutionary new media laws. In fact, there are more journalists uh, in prison today than uh, a few years back. So once again, I come with a, <laughs> a negative <laughs> out, outlook. Yeah, um, over here. Please put the mic closer to You have India, which is well known in the world as the biggest democracy, and you have China, as you may say, as the biggest totalitarian state. And one is, of course, seems to, of course, be a master of. Do you have any, any speech on So it's a question about foreign influence, influence yeah. on the Indian election. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's a difficult question to answer, but I will try. Uh, I was looking at some news, which I don't remember very distinctly, but it did talk about uh, foreign influence, not China, but some foreign influence. But this has not really been... Uh, you know, verified. So I don't really think that there is any outside or foreign influence in India, uh, spe specifically India. I suppose, you know, Indians are so caught up in their own, uh, uh, you know, rhetoric. And yeah, I, in fact, I was, again, I think uh, India uses social, India is one country which uses social media to interfere with its own elections. 
So you have all the parties trying to, uh, you know, dominate and lead the discourse, the conversation. So I don't really think that there is right now any outside interference in Indian elections. You never know. It might crop up later in the news. We have a question over here. Hi. So um, I had a small reflection to add. I mean, very interestingly, when in Myanmar, where the social media was actually being enhancement to displace a community, in the other side of the border in Bangladesh, the same media was actually pushing the government to accept the big community. Because like all of the parties wanted to take a pile, part of their pies from there. So there was a huge influence there. At the same time, as a surge of the same wave, there was again uh, attacks on the minorities in the Buddhist in Bangladesh, which goes to the same carve again. So it comes to the question everywhere, whether it's positive or negative, it works as a buffer. And the buffer system it needs to be regulated. We all are trying to say this. But the thing is, uh, can we expect an international agency organization to suggest any guideline to the national authorities to accept it, like WHO does for the health policies? So is there anything? Questions to Jeffrey. Thank you. Who would like to take that question? Elsa? Um, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of global problems um, facing us at the moment, and we do know how difficult it is to, to organize at an international level and to, do, to agree um, on such measures. So, so, um, so I'm not sure. It, it depends on how, how advanced such a, um, a system um, of regulations would be, I think. Um, but I do think that these tech companies are already facing, I mean, they're being brought into court, they are being held responsible uh, already, um, as you talked about the UN. Uh, so I do think that they are facing uh, more regulations, but it will be difficult to say how that will be enforced in specific national contexts. Okay, we have um, room for one more question. Okay, um, so then I think uh, we'll conclude uh, by uh, me thanking you for an excellent uh, round of presentations and also thanking you for coming and being so very precise in your questions. Um, and uh, I think we'll uh, all... Um, join in a hand, round of applause for the panelists. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.